We are in chapter 19, verse 3. Moses went up to God, and Yahweh called to him from the mountain. Thus you will tell the house of Jacob and declare to the people Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I lifted you up on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And now if you will diligently listen to me and keep my covenant, then you will be my special possession out of all the nations, for all the earth is mine, and you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you will speak to the Israelites. So God gives them the reason for why they're to obey him. And the reason is, I brought you out of Egypt. You have to understand, there's only two reasons that God ever gives us for why we should obey him. First, he is God, and absolutely sovereign over creation, the only one deserving of obedience. And second, he's the only one that's ever saved you. And so the God part is kind of implied already here. But the second thing he's mentioning is, unlike anybody else or any other God, no one has ever bothered to deliver you. Nobody's ever bothered to save you. I've done it all. So if you obey me, then I will do three things. These are the blessings of the covenant. First, you will be a special possession. Now he says, though all the earth is mine, you will be special to me. What this word here is saying is it's used of a king's treasure, his private collection. You have to realize when you become king, you own everything. You own the land, you own everybody's lives, you own all the animals, you own all the property. That's something we're not even, we have no comprehension of that in a democracy, in a presidential kind of a government. But in the ancient world, the king owns everything. He owns your lives, period. He can do whatever he wants with the land. He can do whatever he wants with your lives. He can do anything he wants with your property. The king owns everything. So that's that terminology, though all the earth is mine because I am the king of the universe. But there were things that the king would hold for himself and himself only his hobbies, his collections, whatever he was really into, his baseball collections, Pokemon cards, I don't know. He would have this special vault or a special room in his palace that was only for him to enjoy. The land was used by other people. Other people had their lives. Other people used animals. But this would be for the king and king alone. And only the most honored, only the closest to him would he bring into his private vault, for lack of a better word, and share his most prized possession. And that's what Yahweh is saying. Though everything is mine, you're going to be to me my special possession, my most prized possession. Now you have to understand something. Remember, over and over, God is not playing favorites. This is not God saying, you're my favorite and everybody else sucks. Because remember, he punished Egypt, but he also made it very clear that if you do the same sins that Egypt does, I will punish you. And then later when the Canaanites come along and he punishes them. He tells Israel, if you commit the same sins that the Canaanites, I will punish you. And he does with the exile. All you have to do is read the Bible and you get the sense that God does not play favorites. Especially when you get to the prophets. There's no favorites at all. God blesses the righteous and he punishes the wicked, period. That's how he operates. So this isn't him playing favorites and say everybody else is on off the kickball team, but you're on it. Okay, And this isn't God's way of saying... I'm going to show you off because you're so great and you're so awesome. The point is, I'm going to choose you 
And if you obey me, then I will bless you with this incredible blessings of a land flowing with milk and honey. You'll become a great nation. You'll be blessed so that when all the world looks at you and I show you off to the world, that you become the mo- you're the healthiest nation out there, the most blessed nation out there, the most powerful nation, the most protected nation, and most importantly, the most joyful nation in the world. When I show you off to everybody who comes and visits, as my special possession, everybody will say, wow, who is your God? I want to know him. And that's exactly what the Queen of Sheba did under Solomon. She heard about the amazing nation of Israel, and she came to visit, and everything in the text seems to hint that she converted to Yahweh and came back. And so the point, one of the major reasons that God blesses us is because he loves you. And he gives good gifts to his children. But the other reason he blesses you is so that everybody will say, I want a life of hope. I want a life of peace. I want a life of joy. How do you have that? And Peter, First Peter says, always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. And you say, it's my God. This is how he got me through my trials. This is how he got me through the death of my family. This is how he got me through my economic collapse. And that's what God is saying. That's why he's showing you all. That's why he's going to bless you, because he loves you and because he wants other people to come into that blessing because he loves them too. He is not choosing Israel because they're chosen and everybody else is not. He's choosing Israel to show them off so that everybody will want to become a part of Israel and know this God. And that's what he's saying. And so the second thing that he's saying with the special possession thing is that you're going to be unique. You're going to be different than everybody else. You're going to be unique. And everybody's going to look at you and they're going to see something different about you. And this is exactly what Christ has called us to, is that we're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be unique. We're supposed to have a hope and a joy and a peace that passes all understanding. And then when our world asks us, we say, let me tell you about my God, because we are his special possession. And so that's the first thing that God says that I'm going to do for you. I'm going to make you special. The second thing that he promises them is that they will be a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. Now, I kind of already mentioned this before with the death of the firstborn. But by God saving the firstborn of every family from the angel of death that came through, he's basically saying the firstborn of every family now belongs to me. You all have to serve in the temple. You all had to serve in the tabernacle, in the sanctuary. Now, you might think, well, that really kind of stinks. Like, now, if I'm born first, I'm forced to do this. But in the ancient world, that's a huge privilege. Everybody would want that. Who would not want to have direct access to gods? And especially if your God is the kind of God who came and delivered you and saved you and rescued you and is going to bless you without any reason. Who would want not want direct access? What person here would love to lose their direct access to Christ? No one. And so the reality is this is a huge privilege. And by the fact that every firstborn of every family is now a priest, that means that every family by default has direct access to God, which means unlike the ancient world, it wasn't just a specific tribe or a specific family who got to be priests who then typically became elitist and powerful, corrupt financially and um, politically, because only that family, year after year after year after year, decade after decade, century after century, could ever be priests. 
God is saying everybody will be priests. You all have direct access to God. And that is very important. That is a privilege that no one anywhere in the ancient world ever had. Period. But the second thing he's saying is the role of a priest is a mediator. And a mediator is a go-between. And so we cannot have access to God because we are sinners who cannot come in the presence of his glory. And God cannot step into our presence because he cannot be with sin because sin is offensive and he is righteous. And so what a priest does is a priest is going to dedicate themselves to an extra level of holiness, an extra level of purity that is allowing them to get closer to God than anybody else. And as a result, they will mediate. And one of the things they will do as a mediator is they will bring God closer to everybody else. They'll teach everybody what holiness is. They'll teach everybody what, who is God. What does he want of them? How to pray? How to know? Basically what we think of as teachers and pastors and counselors today. People who just help you have a better understanding of who God is. Except they're way more holy and way, and, um, way more righteous and held to a higher standard than what we think of pastors. Now I'm not saying... All priests back then were more righteous and holy than pastors today. But in the way that they were, they viewed themselves and everybody viewed them. Okay, your pastor can do pretty much anything we do, but the priests were isolated. They, they had to live a certain way. And it's pretty much what we've all been called to as Christians today, whether we do it or not. The second thing, that second part of being a priest, is that they then atone for the sins of the people and they bring the people into the presence of God. And so they're the people who can get closer to God because they're righteous. So what they do is they take your animal sacrifice and they bring it to God and they sacrifice the animal and that blood atonement atones for your sins and then allows you to be pulled closer to God. And so they kind of, as the book of Hebrews is going to use this word, they can become an anchor. And in the ancient world, anchors could be used to be thrown down into the water and keep you standing still in one place. Or it could be used if there was no winds, you would throw the anchor out in front of you and it'd go into the ocean, it hit the floor, and then you would pull the chain, pulling yourself towards the anchor. And then you would throw it again. That's not the funnest way to do it, but that's better than sitting still if there's no winds. And so the book of Hebrews, it says that Christ has become our anchor and that he has gone before us through the veil into the Holy of Holies in heaven and he pulls us into heaven by his own works. In his own atonement. And so that's kind of what the priest would do. The priest was the one who lived an extra holy life. He could walk closer to God. He would take your animal close to God. He would sacrifice to it, and he would draw you closer too. And so what he did was he took a righteous God and a sinner, and his job was to bring them together, a mediator, and to reconcile the relationship. And so what he's saying is, you're not going to be a priestly family to all of the other Israelites in the nation. You're going to be a priestly nation to all the humans in the world. Now notice, so far, these two blessings are first and foremost for Israel, that they're going to have a special relation with God that nobody else has. But remember, the whole purpose is to get everybody else to have that relationship too. The point is, is that Israel becomes a priest. They will draw the Canaanites. They will draw the Egyptians. They will draw the Moabites. They will draw everybody into the presence of God, teaching the world what it means to be holy, what it means to be righteous, and atoning for their sins and pulling them in. 
just like God said to Abraham in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 of Genesis, I will give you a land, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you so that you can be a blessing to the world. And all these three things is, I am blessing you because I love you so that you can be a blessing to the world. Israel was supposed to be the priestly nation to the entire world. And that's what God is calling them to. The third thing is he's calling them to is a holy nation. And the holy nation is that they are to be separate, unique, unlike anybody else. And this is an extra level of uniqueness than just a special possession. Because a special possession is what God is doing to them. But the holy nation is the fact that once they commit themselves to God, by becoming connected to God, they become holy. Now, we talked about what holiness meant back in chapter 3. So if you forget or whatever, that's okay. I have to hear things over and over again. But um, you can go back to chapter 3 and look at that. We talked about what holiness means. But just as a little reminder, remember that only God is holy. Only he can be holy because the essence of holiness is something that is completely unique, completely unlike anything else, and therefore completely separate. There is nothing we can use to describe God. God is unfathomable. He is uncontainable. He is indescribable. He is so unlike anything in all creation, so otherly. And so the holiness is that he is not just separate, like I don't want to be close to you, but he is literally completely unlike anything else in all of creation. And so that makes, and one of the ways he distinguishes himself as holy is that his character is far more righteous than anybody else's. And that's one of the ways that he really stands out. Therefore, by me becoming holy, the more I attach myself to God, then I become holy by the fact that I'm connected to him and I'm being used to him. And the more I'm attached to him, the more I become like him and the more I become unlike anything else in creation in a positive sense. So that when people look at me, they say, how in the world can you have that kind of a life in this kind of a world? And you say, let me tell you about my God. And that was the whole point of these three blessings that God was going to do. And the only way they can get this is if they're obedient. And this obedience is not just God saying, here's the hoops you need to jump through, and then I'll give this to you. But the obedience is, because I love God. I show that I love God by obeying Him, by being close to Him, by being like Him. And how can you be righteous, how can you be different, if you don't act anything different than anybody else in the world? And so part of this is a coming together. God expects you to kind of, he initiated it. He first took you out of the world and he did something unique with you that nobody else has ever done. And that's supposed to blow you away so tremendously and overwhelm you with such a tremendous amount of love and thankfulness that you can't help but want to respond and say, what can I do? How can I know you better? And then as you do that, that draws you closer to God. And as you get drawn closer to God, then you actually begin to act like him, which means you actually become obedient and righteous, which means in return, he begins to make you more like him, and then you become these three things, which then attracts everybody else. And that's how it starts. And notice that he's the one who initiates it. I mean, none of us can just be obedient through our own efforts and works and become this kind of a person. 
And if somebody gave you a million dollars and saved your life and promised to be there for whatever reason that you would need it, you would want to do anything to please them. You would want to do anything to thank them. And so this is what God is saying. I saved you from Egypt and slavery. And that your natural human response should be, I want to know you more. I want to be more like you. And as we draw closer, we become more like him. As we become more like him, he blesses us. We become more like these things. And then we actually become what we're supposed to be. And so this is what God is calling them to. Now, when you get to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2 does the same thing. 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says that you have been saved by the foreknowledge of the Father, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, and redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ. All three members of the Trinity have had a role in pulling you out of your life of sin and into this righteous life. And then he goes in and he talks about what your salvation will be like, where it came from. Actually, it starts with the future. This is what you'll get one day, an imperishable, unspoiled inheritance that will never fade and is always being kept and will give you a living hope. Then he talks about what you can have now, a joy in the midst of trials and suffering. And then he talks about where it came from in the past as a result of the prophets and all of them that pass this on down to you. And once he finishes telling you that all three members of the Trinity have saved you and what your salvation is future, present, and past, then he quotes Exodus 19, verses 3 through 6. And he says, You are now a chosen people, a special possession, a, right, a whole royal priesthood, and a holy nation. But here's what's really cool about Peter. Peter doesn't say, If you obey then you will be. He just says, because you have been saved through the foreknowledge of the Father and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, through the blood of Jesus Christ, you are these three things. Israel will never get these three things in their entirety because they will never be obedient enough. And eventually they will be kicked completely out of the land of Israel because we're not capable of doing this. We're not capable of desiring God enough, and we're not capable of living this obedient life enough. And so what Peter says is that Christ has become true, ultimate Israel. And he did what Israel could not do. And But because he is Israel at the same time, then he has accomplished everything that was expected of Israel. Therefore, he has become the special possession of God. This is my son and whom I well please. He has become the priest that goes in the Holy of Holies and atones for your sins and draws you close to God. And he lives inside of you, teaching who God is. And he becomes the holy son of God who then allows you to become holy. And because you've chosen him and you've been adopted as his son, you become Israel too. And Romans chapter 12 says, therefore, or Romans 8, that the law becomes fulfilled in us because he is in us and he fulfilled the law. And so what is unique about today is that you have all three of these things, not through your own works, not through your own obedience like Israel is expected to do, but through Christ, which means only when you remain in him, he will remain in you, will you have these three things. And so this is what God's ultimate goal was. God's ultimate goal was that all of us would be Israel. And now anybody who looks at a Christian 
who is an Israelite by adoption and says, I want to know that God, they can become an Israelite by adoption and receive these things as well. And so this is what God has promised. This is why this is one of the most important paragraphs in the entire Bible and becomes the heart of Christianity as well. And this is everything the Bible is about. And so the rest of the First Testament will show how humans failed to live up to this and receive these, yet God never divorces them and never abandons them and never gives up on them and ultimately does what they could not do through Christ, therefore sealing us and the Holy Spirit and these gifts despite our lack of obedience. Does that make sense? And this is God's ultimate goal. And remember, what he does for them physically, he will do for us spiritually. And so this is what he promises them. God has spoken. Verse 7, So Moses came and summoned the elders of Israel, and he set before them all these words that Yahweh had commanded him. And all the people answered together, and all that Yahweh had commanded, we will do. So Moses brought the words of the people back to Yahweh. Now this is very important for you to understand. They immediately respond by saying, we will obey everything you command. You know the rest of the story, and you're probably thinking, yeah, right. But the second thing you must understand is they agreed to the terms. They agreed to the terms. And so that is very important. And that will become very important, and I'll repeat this over and over again, because when we get to the golden calf, you need to remember that they agreed to the terms or you'll misunderstand what's going on. Moses has already gone up to the mountain once, and he received these this instructions. He came back and spoke it to the people. The people said, Amen, brother, we'll do it. And so now Moses, in verse 8, goes back up the mountain a second time. And it says, um, at the end of verse 8, So Moses brought the words of the people back to Yahweh. So he goes back up the mountain, and he says, They say yes. Now you're like, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> Do they, does God really need Moses to communicate that? No, but remember Moses is the mediator. He is serving as a mediator. The point is not that Moses needs to tell God. The point is to communicate how far away the people are from God. And that's, it's not a physical or a lack of knowledge point that the Bible is making, but a theological, spiritual disconnection that the people have. So Yahweh said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people may hear when I speak to you with you and so that they will always believe in you. And Moses told the words of the people to Yahweh. So he comes back down the mountain. He says, hey, he's coming down in a big giant cloud. Get ready. And the word of Yahweh said to Moses, go to the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow and make them wash their clothes and be ready for the third day. And for on the third day, Yahweh will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you must set boundaries for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourself, and not go up the mountain, nor touch its edge. Whoever touches the mountain will surely be put to death. Now, no hand will touch him, but he will surely be stoned or shot through, whether a beast or a human being. He must not live. And when a ram's horn sounds a long blast, they may go up onto the mountain." or go up near the mountain. So God says, okay, get the people ready. They're to wash their clothes, they're to put on their Sunday's best, and they're to get ready for the appearing of God. Now this seems kind of weird, like you have to take a bath and wash your clothes and change them to get ready for God. But a part of it is this idea that 
dressing a certain way mentally prepares you for encountering somebody. Okay, if you're going to like meet the President of the United States in your like work clothes that you'd garden in, you're not really getting mentally prepared for entering into something like that. And so the the dressing up now. I don't really believe that you have to dress up and deck yourself out to go out to church every Sunday because I think that's legalistic. But at the same time, there is something to say, I'm going to get dressed up and mentally prepare myself for this fact that this is a special, unique occasion that I'm stepping in. And in speaking as a teacher who is experiencing to dress down days versus uniforms, the behavior of kids does change when they go out of uniforms into dress down clothes is a drastic, overwhelming change in their behavior. It sounds so stupid. It doesn't logically make sense. But there is a valid truth to behavior changing when, they're dressed, when their clothes um, change. For the better not? for the better. So not that they become a bunch of heathens ready to sacrifice people, but, um, but they just become a little bit more less self-controlled and a little bit more boisterous. The reality is, is this is what he's calling to do. So he says, and they're not allowed to come to the close of the mountain. Now remember, this isn't like a mean God who says, if you come to the mountain, I'm going to kill you. Because remember, this is the only God that's ever saved them. This is the only God that's going to give them all these blessings. The point is, I'm a righteous God. And you cannot come in the presence of righteousness. And mostly, even if nobody stoned you, you would die anyways. Because righteousness automatically cleanses sin. And if you are a sinner, then you will be cleansed, and that means death. And so God is basically making it very clear to them, I love you. All of this is about making you righteous. All of this is about getting you into my presence because I love you. But at the same time, you're still a sinner. And my righteousness eradicates and cleanses sin. Period. And you will die if this happens. So, verse 14. Then Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people. And they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready for on the third day... Do not go near your wives. Now, he doesn't mean like women over there and men over there. He means no sexual relations. Now you're like, okay, this is one verse that some people have used to try to prove that sex is bad and sex was the original sin and all this kind of stuff. That's not the point. The point is, is this isn't about your relationship. The closest, most intimate relationship you'll ever have on earth is your spouse. And what God is saying right now is this is not about your relationship with anybody else right now. This is about your relationship with God. And you're not to be distracted by anything in this world right now. You're, and we know that, one, your spouse is the closest thing to you, and sex is probably the most driving, powerful force in our lives for most people. And what God is saying is that needs to be set aside for the sake of me right now. I'm not saying men and women separate yourselves physically like some um, Amish community church. I'm not saying that sex is bad. I'm just saying for this time at the mountain with me, you're going to encounter the living God in a way that you never have. You are not to be distracted with earthly things right now. It is to be all about me, period. And that's what God is saying here. So verse 16. On the third day... In the morning, there was a thunder and a lightning and a dense cloud, and on the mountain the sound of a very loud horn, and all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and he took their place at the foot of the mountain. So God comes down and smoke, fire, lightning, earthquake, blasting trumpets. 
in a way that we can never, ever, ever comprehend. And they begin to tremble in fear at the sight of this. Now, if that happened physically, I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, I've been reading some articles of firsthand accounts of the forest fires out in California right now. And a lot of people have said, like, I mean, there's a couple actually, like, survived a fire by going under and up and under again for six hours in their swimming pool. And that's how they stayed alive. And they talk about the fear of everything being fire around them and not knowing whether they're going to survive. That's just a natural forest fire. This is not the divine God of the universe coming down their swimming pool. So if you can imagine being surrounded by an earthquake and a fire and lightning, all that stuff all at once on just a naturalistic level, imagine the fear when the most righteous divine being of the universe is also in that. And so this is what they are trembling at. This is what they're afraid. Yes, God is loving. But as C.S. Lewis says so well in the Chronicles of Narnia, when they're like, Aslan is a lion? And he says, yes, he's a lion. Is he safe? And they're like, heck no, he's not safe. He's a lion. But he's good. And that's the point. We don't want a safe God. Okay? You don't want a safe God. A safe God cannot handle your problems. A safe God does not deal with evil. You want a good God who is unsafe. And it's kind of like Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris is a really good guy. In fact, in real life, Chuck Norris is a Christian. And so Chuck Norris, if he comes into you, he's going to save you. But he's also not safe. And you like him not being safe when a bunch of people are trying to attack you. And that's what's going on here. God is not safe. But this God is good because he's coming to make them a special possession. Not to kill them. Not to kill them. But that doesn't change the fact that they're afraid. Fear is not always bad. I have a healthy fear of fire. I don't just like jump into fire because I like doing it. Okay, Not all fear is bad. I have a healthy fear of stoves. I just don't like put my hands all over the stoves all the time. Okay, I have a healthy fear of all my like power tools. Okay, I've cut things off my body. I don't enjoy it. I have a healthy fear of that kind of stuff. That doesn't mean I'm crippled by the fear. It doesn't mean that fear is bad. It just means certain kinds of fear are pretty good because they keep you safe. They keep you intelligent. They help you respect the real severity of what that thing is and what it can do. And so this is not a bad thing that they're trembling in fear. This is a healthy response. In fact, remember the book of Psalm with Proverbs says the beginning, the, the beginning of the wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And that word fear means pretty much what you think it means and then some. So God comes down on the mountain. Verse 20, Then Yahweh came down on Mount Sinai on top of the mountain, and Yahweh summoned Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And Yahweh said to Moses, Go down and solemnly warn the people, lest they force their way through to Yahweh, and look, and many of them perish. Let the priests also who approach Yahweh sanctify themselves, lest Yahweh break through against them. So God makes him go back down the mountain again, and says, One more time, just warn them. Make sure they know that this is serious. But then he says, go ahead and bring the priest up partway. Now remember, the priests at this point are Aaron, his three sons, and the firstborn of all these families. That's the priesthood right now. Now, how many of the firstborn of all these families actually go halfway up? We don't know, but we definitely know a certain group of them. So verse 23, So Moses said to Yahweh, The people are not able to come up to the Mount Sinai because you have solemnly warned us. Set boundaries for the mountain and set apart. Yahweh said to them, go get down and come up and um, go, go, sorry, the commas are important. Go, get down and come up with Aaron with you. 
But do not let the priests and the people force their way through to come up to Yahweh, lest they break through against him. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. So it's very important for you to understand how important. Right now, all this is communicating the righteousness of God. And that's something we've lost today. Today, one of the negative side effects of Jesus Christ being this amazing figure who put on flesh and actually walked among us and gave us a more direct access to God than we ever could to the point that he actually lives in us. And we can call him um, brother and we can call him um, father and we can call him and we have this like thing. One of the side effects is that we've lost that holiness. We've lost that fear, that respect. We've lost that awe. Unfortunately, God has become too nonchalant for us to not overwhelming anymore not wow not awesome the word do you know the word awesome was actually invented just to describe god they wanted a word that was so unique and so different that's that they awe some that they actually invented a word that would be described of god and god alone and the 1980s came along and we used it as skateboarding okay but the reality is is We've lost that idea of what it means to walk into the presence of God and fall on our knees and truly just be wowed, floored in an indescribable way. And you remember, like, John, the disciple, is the disciple of Jesus Christ who walked and lived with him for four and a half years. He has the Holy Spirit in him. He knows about the death and resurrection. He's in the same boat that you and I are theologically, with the same relationship with God that we are. And yet, even when an angel appears to him, he falls down the ground in total fear, and he's tempted to worship the angel, and the angel has to say, no, 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 you don't worship me. You worship the lamb on the throne. And if you can imagine that a man who has walked with Christ and was his best buds with Christ and is actually in charge of taking care of Christ's own mother, and has the Holy Spirit, knows about the resurrection, and he knows that there's intimacy like anything else, and even he's so wowed by an angel that he's tempted to worship it. Imagine what it would be like for him to come in the presence of God. And we've lost that. We've lost that. We've just taken it for granted, and Jesus has become too much of our best bud and not enough of our God still. And that's the primary thing that this is trying to communicate. It seems redundant, it seems overkill, but the point is that this is the God of the divine universe. Now, this doesn't change, because when John is finally taken up in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, he sees the same, he sees this God that is on this throne that like towers up into the heavens, and this glory is beaming out of him, and John is separated, John with the Holy Spirit, John with Jesus Christ, is still separated from God by a sea and four living creatures and all this kind of stuff. And even with the blood of Jesus Christ, even with the Holy Spirit, he's still at this huge distance from God, separate him, and there's this booming glory that's coming out of God. And so it's not like the Jesus Christ has just turned us into like best buds and now I can walk with them. That is kind of true, but there also is a sense that Yahweh is still unapproachable, untouchable. Because he is God. And no matter how righteous we become and how much we become perfect, God will still be this wow, fall on our face before him. 
And I don't think they'll ever get old for all eternity because that is not the image that is painted in the Bible. You just kind of get used to it like the painting on your wall. You're going to always be wowed by this. And we've lost that in modern-day Christianity. Unfortunately, the Jews went to the extreme and held that so high that they lost the relationship. We've emphasized the relationship so much that we've lost the wow, the awesomeness of it. Neither one is healthy. Neither one is health- healthy.